Good morning. So nice to be here this morning. Good to see each one. Hope each one got a good night's rest. This morning I'd like to look at sinful independence. You know in the plan of heaven, in the great government of God in heaven, there is no independence. Now there, of course, is uh, individuality. Each being in heaven has their own individual personality. Each one has freedom, each one has peace, unity, and joy. There is perfect harmony, but there is not that uh, independence of everyone doing their own thing. Even in this sinful world, God has sought to illustrate this heavenly principle through the workings of nature. You know, we think of the bee and the flower. The bee goes and gathers nectar from the flower. The flower can't survive without the bee. But as the bee is gathering its nectar, it spreads the, uh, it fertilizes the, the flowers so that they can reproduce. And uh, so the flower couldn't exist without the bee, and the bee couldn't exist without the flower, could it? Both doing different functions, but working in harmony and in unity and for the well-being of each other. And that's the way God wants us to work together. That's the way that God's family in heaven cooperates and functions. Not all doing the same thing or even all thinking the same things, but nevertheless loving each other and working together in harmony and for the welfare of each other. And so everyone in heaven has independence, but no one acts independently. I suppose that we could put it that way. No one acts independently because they are all held together uh, by the bonds of humility of self and love toward others. Humility of self and love towards others. And... um, As we think of the government in heaven, even God himself does not act independently. And I suppose when we say even God, we could say especially God does not act independently. Everything he does is for the well-being of his creatures. It's not for his own welfare or his enjoyment. And he elicits the cooperation of all of his creatures, all of, of all of of all of his subjects. You think of the creation of this earth, how that when God created the world, one of the first things he did was to have Adam become a part of the work that he was doing. He had him start naming all the animals. Now, it would have been much easier for God to have named the animals. He could have programmed it into Adam's brain, and when he awoke, he would have known all the names of the animals intuitively. But he didn't do that, did he? He would rather have him working with him. We think of probably the most important aspect of creation. You know, God created the trees and the the flowers and the animals, but the most precious aspect of creation God didn't create. He left it for Adam and Eve to create. The babies, new people. Jesus just created two, and then he left it up to Adam and Eve to procreate until the world was populated. Now, don't you suppose it would have been a lot easier for God, a lot safer for God maybe, just to pop, create everyone for the world? There wouldn't have been any trouble, would it have? Wouldn't have been any trouble. 
And I rather think that God could have done a better job, probably, than Adam and Eve. But you see, that's the way that uh, God works. He works in cooperation with his creatures. We even think of the great rebellion in heaven. Could there have been a rebellion in heaven unless there had been an awful lot of freedom? Can you imagine raising an army? Could you go and ru- could a Russian citizen raise up an army? Not very well, could they? But here in heaven, here was an army raised. You know, a lot of people think of heaven as sort of a totalitarian government where there's somebody that speaks the word and everything else just flows from that word. But you know, here we have in heaven someone that raises a whole army and gathers a third of the inhabitants of heaven and God never stopped him. And then we think of what God did with that rebellion. Revelation 12, verse 7. What is, uh, we have a little insight into the rebellion. This text probably refers to after the cross as well as uh, way at the beginning also. Looks like there might have been another war after the cross when Satan was not allowed to come back to heaven anymore. But certainly... This took place also way back in the beginning. It says, war broke out in heaven. Can you imagine war in heaven? I mean, there was, uh, something's wrong. There's uh, two sides to every problem, right? Must have been. Well, in this case, there wasn't. There was only one side. But nevertheless, war broke out, and Michael and his angels fought. Can you imagine fighting in heaven? You know how much easier it would have been for God to say, go. What would have happened if God would have told Satan to go? What happened when Jesus told Satan, get behind me? Did he stand there and argue? It happened like he said. The Bible says God spoke, and it was what? It was done. God had told Satan to leave, he would have left involuntarily, but he would have been gone. I can, I'm glad that I wasn't in charge. God hasn't, of course, given any of his creatures that kind of wisdom. If I'd have been in charge, I'm sure I would have thought something like this. You know, maybe I'd have called Satan in, you know, and uh, had a little talk to explain things, but shared with him, you know, heaven is, is just too sacred and too important to allow conflict to come in here. We've got to keep it pure and holy. And you're causing a lot of trouble. I'm going to have to ask you to go. So then he would have had to gone. And we'd have saved all that trouble in heaven. We'd have just had a peace that would have continued. But you see, God doesn't act that way. He didn't tell Satan to go. He allowed the angels themselves to decide the issue. and And they actually got in and fought until heaven was saved. You the amount of uh, of uh, responsibility and uh, the cooperation that God gets from the angels just amazes me. You remember the story in Daniel where Gabriel came down and for three weeks he fought and he couldn't prevail until finally he said, "Lord, you're going to have to come down and help me out in this." I feel fairly sure that as the angels go about their work, that God does not tell them how to prosecute their work. He may give them counsel. 
They may ask for counsel. Many times the Lord will send an angel down. In fact, we have the story in the Bible. God said, what are we going to do here about in the Old Testament with Ahab and, and with some of these other kings? And One angel came up with one, one idea and another another idea, and God said, I like your idea. Go ahead and do it. Remember that story in the Old Testament? And I'm quite sure that when God sends an angel, the angels down on their, their missions, that they have to do some thinking of how, to, how they're going to carry this out. And they may talk with some of the other angels, and one angel may do something different than the way another angel would do it. And when you see a miracle performed sometimes, it might be the way that your angel decided to do it after a th- thousands of years of learning, but it might be a little different than another angel would have done it, you see. They all do the best they can. I mean, when God sends humans out to give a Bible study, does he tell them exactly how to give the Bible study or do they have to use some of their own wisdom? Now, we have to depend on the Holy Spirit to win the heart, don't we? But two people don't give a Bible study the same way, do they? Two evangelists don't preach a message the same way. Even two good evangelists, however good they are, they all preach different. And that's the way the angels work. Well, by the way, you know, as I... Well, there's another illustration I should probably mention, just to reinforce the thing. We think of the great judgment that's taking place in heaven since 1844. Do you really think that it takes God years to decide and to find out who should be saved and who should be lost? God would know in an instant. He already knows. He knows everyone that should be saved and should be lost. The whole judgment scene is an illustration of God's kind of government that he elicits everyone. I mean, he works with his creatures. I mean, just think it through. Who is going to judge the wicked? I mean, they're already not in heaven, of course, but going to go over and decide their punishment if they should get any or whatever it is and all that. Who does that? The righteous during the thousand years, don't they? Isn't that an amazing responsibility? I, uh, how much easier, how much easier it would have been for God in 1844 to just come down and given out three rewards. He could have done it. And I'm sure everyone would have trusted him, say, yes, God, we know that you're just and right and good. Sure, you won't make any mistakes, as long as it's not my mother, of course. But other than that, I'm sure you won't make any mistakes. Um, but God didn't do that, did he? What a lesson for parents, by the way. How much easier it is for parents sometimes to just do the dishes and get them done, make the bed after the... But that's not the way God works, is it? He takes the extra time to let his creatures help him. And that's why God made children and parents. Uh, sometimes it takes more work for the children to help them, but that's the way that God made it to be, isn't it? When they make a bed, it's let them help make it. It takes twice as long, but... That's the way it goes, you see. And so heaven is built on the principle of cooperation and unity. And thus it had always been until one arose in heaven to begin his own independent ministry. His own independent organization and independent movement. And this was a sinful independence. Because it was independence from God and from His perfect government. 
from God's organization. I'll tell you, independent ministries and self-supporting work was never part of God's original plan. It was not a part of heaven. But there was a one who came along in a perfect environment, in, in a perfect government, and began his own independent ministry in cooperation and in opposition to the regular ministry of heaven that had been in operation for ages. And thus began the spirit of independence. And when this spirit came to earth, this earth entered a night of blackness and darkness, suffering. Look with me over here at Genesis 3 at what the beginning of sin entailed. What was Satan's original temptation? It was for independence. Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. It says, And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. You won't need God. You'll have your own immortality. For God knows that in the day you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You won't need God to tell you what to do anymore. You will be able to be independent. You won't need the Ten Commandments. You won't need somebody giving you rules and regulations. You can be all independent. You will be like God himself. As though God is independent, of course. That was the implication Satan was saying here. He was implying that God acts independently and you can be independent too if you eat of this tree. That was a great temptation. To enter into a higher sphere of being independent and not dependent on anyone or not having to work in cooperation or listen to someone else. And from the moment that Eve yielded to that temptation, earth became a part of the independent ministry of Satan, which made things rather confusing for people on earth because it wasn't long before, as Adam and Eve had children, that the whole human race, almost, joined this independent ministry of, of Satan. And now, and notice this, because the plot deepens a little bit, those who remained loyal to God became themselves independent of the rebellion that was pervading on earth. Do you follow what I said there? You see, God's plan has always been for humble cooperation. It's what it is now, and that's what it ever has been. All through the Bible, we have councils trying to help us learn this spirit. We have to learn it before we get to heaven. Paul tells us in Romans 13, 1 and 2, that we have to learn submission to government powers. Over in Ephesians 6, 5 and 6, he tells us workmen have to learn this principle of submission to those that they work for. That's what's one of the things wrong with labor unions. doesn't say you have to work for any certain person, but while you're working there, you have to learn this character trait that is needed for heaven. Over in 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6, it says that we have to learn this in the church between one another. Ephesians 5, 22 and verse 21, it tells us that we husbands and wives are both to be submissive to each other. Over in Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4, it tells us that children are to honor their parents and are to obey them and to learn to be submissive to their, their parents. 
This spirit of love and cooperation is the character that we have to develop. Husbands and wives, all of us, every person who goes to heaven has to learn the principle of humility, love and cooperation. And this is the spirit that Jesus came down and exemplified. Was this spirit of love and cooperation. It's it's the character that will exemplify the 144,000. Look with me over at Revelation 14, verse 4. What does it say over here? These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. So the 144,000 are a group of followers. They have learned to follow the Lamb. But from the beginning of sin, those who have maintained their dependence on God and have followed Him, becoming humble servants of His government, have found themselves at odds with the world. There was Noah to whom God gave the warning about a coming flood. And yet all the world remained independent of God's counsel and God's leading and God's warnings. All except Noah and his family and a few others who died right before the flood. All the organized churches in Noah's day became independent of God's counsel. There was only Noah and his family who remained loyal and dependent upon God. How alone and isolated they seemed. How aloof from counsel. You know, here's Noah. He doesn't accept anybody's counsel. He just goes on, does his own thing, all independent of everyone else. That's what it appeared, didn't it? How independent he appeared. Yet in reality, contrary to the way things appeared, actually Noah and his family were the only true non-independent people on earth. Everyone else was acting independent. They were the only ones that were working in complete harmony and dependence and cooperation with God. Now Satan scored a major victory when he gained the whole world on his side. But dear friends, he gained an even greater victory when the time came that he was able to gain the whole world, a whole church, not just the world, but God's own church that he had established when he caused them and to all join him in his independence and in his dissatisfaction. Turn with me over to Numbers 14, verses 3 and 4. They had sent 12 spies in. Stephen calls this the church of God in the wilderness, you'll remember, in Acts Chapter 7. This is God's church. And we have uh, Caleb and Joshua here. Well, we have verse first in verses 3 and 4, the people speaking. They say, Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not have been better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Ellen White points out that he actually had gone as far as to select someone. This was actually Israel's first king, but he didn't live long enough to, for us even to learn who his name was because he was slaughtered with uh, 
disaster that took place later. So we think of King Saul as being the first king. But actually someone was elected here. The first, this was their first nominating committee that they had had. The first general conference session. And they selected their own leader. So Caleb talks to them. Verse 9. Only do not rebel against the Lord. He recognized this as a rebellion. Now it was all the people, but just because it was everyone acting together doesn't mean that it, it was right. It was a rebellion. It was a general rebellion against the Lord. Nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation... Now, the word congregation in the Old Testament is the word that in the New Testament is translated as church. If you'll look in your congregation, you'll find that the word church is a New Testament term. It was never used in the Old Testament. It's the English word they used to translate the word ecclesia in the Greek. Ecclesia means out-called or called out. Uh, In the Old Testament... Uh, However, uh, the word that was used was this word. When when, uh, Stephen, for example, is quoting the Old Testament, and when the Old Testament used the word congregation, he used the Greek word that we think of as church. This was the Old Testament equivalent to what we think of as the word church. And so here we have, if we're using the New Testament terminology... It says, all the church said to stone them with stones. Now here we have the whole congregation that is ready to disfellowship Caleb and Joshua. Ellen White also elaborates on this verse. She mentions, in fact, that they had already picked up stones and that some people had already died. They had not got to Caleb and Joshua, but some of his supporters that were standing in the way lost their lives. There were martyrs at this time. Actually, some people died. And so the whole church became independent, ready to disfellowship Caleb and Joshua. Now I have a simple question. It's simple because we have the Bible record. But if we were living back then, it might not have been so simple. And if we should see the same thing happening today, I'm sure it wouldn't be so simple for us to answer. But now I want to ask the question, who was right, the majority or the minority? The church leaders, the majority of the church leaders represented by the ten spies, or those who had been disfellowshipped for giving the straight testimony? It was those who had been disfellowshipped who were the true and the right followers of God. But you know, even though that the Lord stopped them here, notice it says, Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before the children of Israel. If God's glory had not appeared, the church would have gone off doing their own thing. And years later, they would have tried to justify what they did. They would have gone on with their new general conference order and general conference leaders and all the rest, with the others being disfellowshipped. God stopped it. Miraculously, he wasn't ready for the church to go through this yet. But the people didn't learn. I tell you, the spirit of independence and rebellion is so deep-seated that it is almost impossible to quell once it takes a hold of a congregation or of a people or of an organization. 
Look with me over here at chapter 16. As the story continues, we'll skip right over chapter 15 because we don't have time. But uh, let's look down here in chapter 16. Now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, the son of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation. Now this was a representative type of government. These were the representatives from the church. Remember the word congregation is the word for church. These are 250 of the representatives of the church. Now that's the way you make conferences, is you have representatives from different churches and different groups, and they come together for smaller conferences, or they come together for bigger conferences until eventually you get to a general conference with all of the representatives from all over the world. Here we have representatives, 250 And these were representatives of the congregation. They were men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much on yourselves. Their charge was you are acting independently. We are acting in cooperation with the people. We are the people's choice, the church's choice, and the church's representative. You are acting independently. You see, Moses and Aaron were never elected by the people. They were the, they had never been elected. They were not elected officials. But here were elected officials. And they're accusing Moses and Aaron of taking too much. For all of the church is holy, every one of them. That's sort of what Satan tempted Eve with, you see. But we are holy. We are the voice of God. When we act cooperatively and unitedly, this is the voice of God, you see. We're all holy. Every one of them. And the Lord is among them. After all, is it not true that this is God's church? Why then do you exalt yourself above the church of the Lord? What was their accusation of Moses and Aaron? I tell you, things get rather confusing sometimes because God's principle is that we should always work together. But here was Moses and Aaron. They weren't working with the church at all. Because the church had all chosen their own leaders and they had set up their own ideas. They had already decided to go back to Egypt and Moses and Aaron weren't moving with them. They had chosen someone to lead them back and Moses and Aaron were not going along with the majority or with the decisions of the general conference here, you see. And so they're accused of being independent. Now I want to ask a very... Uh, a question here that you may not have thought of before, but it's a very important question. And that is, who were the elected leaders? Who were the elected leaders? Look down with me at verse 19. And Korah gathered all of the congregation, all of the church, against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Who had the church elected? It was Korah, along with Dathan and Byron. Now, dear friends, a, a very simple question. Sometimes it's not so simple when we're facing it, though. Did God recognize Korah simply because he had been elected by all the people? 
You know, it is an interesting thing that uh, I have seen. In fact, I've had I had a pastor not too long ago that I was a member of the church after I had been a pastor myself, of course. But when the Lord led us into the ministry that we are in, he uh, was sharing about Moses and how that he was in the place of Moses and Anyone that uh, did not recognize his authority was like Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And interestingly enough, I've heard that used before. It must have been used back in Alan White's time because I got a letter, but I don't have it here, I see. I hope I have it in my briefcase. Somebody just gave me this. It's just been released here, a letter from the White Estate that she wrote to the leaders of the General Conference. And she says, we need to understand religious liberty. She says, we don't understand that in the church. She says, you folks are not in the place of Moses. Moses is not an example of what leaders are to be. Moses was chosen by God. Was Moses ever chosen by the people? Never. Never. He was rejected by the people. Korah was chosen by the people. You see, we have our analogies just turned around completely. Moses was not the elected leaders and Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, the rebels. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were the elected leaders. And Moses was a disfellowshipped one, almost. I mean, they rejected him, didn't they? In fact, at times they took up stones to stone at him, too. Remember that? Well, here's the question. Is it possible for the whole world to become independent of the Lord's leading? We know that for sure. I mean, the Bible says in the last days all the world will wander after the beast. But now here's the more important question. Is it possible for God's church to become independent of the Lord's leading? That doesn't mean it's not God's church. Did Israel remain God's church? And God's church. But they were independent of the Lord. And they died in the wilderness. He couldn't take them into Canaan because they became insubordinate to his leading, corporately insubordinate, corporately rebellious. The whole church, except for just a few, became independent of the Lord. Oh, I could take us up through all of the history of Israel as Stephen did. I think of uh, Elijah. There was never a man who respected authority any more than Elijah did. I mean, view Elijah running at the risk of his life in front of those chariots, of course, under the Spirit of the Lord, in that, in that slippery, you know, with it raining and through the mud and all, running ahead of those wild horses with the lightning flashing and guiding King Ahab. I mean, there was never a more wicked king than Ahab. But here was Elijah showing his respect for authority, showing his humility, and he was leading those horses right into the wicked city of Samaria. Yet, though Elijah respected authority, he was a spokesman for God, and just because he respected church authority and governmental authority, he neither asked permission to speak, because he had been asked by God to speak, nor did he reject his ministry simply because he had been censored by church authority. 
I think of John the Baptist, who spoke, came in the spirit and power of Elijah, we're told in Luke 1.17. He was God's chosen instrument. He also had the same respect for authority that, John, that, um, that Elijah had. And yet, when he came, did he... Well, let me read something here from Desire of Ages, page 132 about John the Baptist. Although he respected authority in the government and uh, he had learned to be submissive as few other people have ever learned. Look what it says about John the Baptist. Or listen to what it says. It says, John had not recognized the authority of the Sanhedrin by seeking their sanction for his work and he reproved rulers and people and Pharisees and Sadducees alike. That's an interesting statement from the Desire of Ages. It says, now the Sanhedrin was the, the highest authority in the church in Jesus' day, in John the Baptist's day, the highest authority in the church. Did John the Baptist respect, uh, did he uh, recognize, I should say, not the word respect, did he recognize the authority of the Sanhedrin? No, he did not. You see, his calling and authority did not come from man, but from God. The Sanhedrin had tried to assume prerogatives and authority that belong to God alone. Making themselves independent of God and John the Baptist did not join in their independent attitude by recognizing their illicit authority. That was a complicated sentence maybe, but I hope you got the meaning. I mean, look at the message of John the Baptist over here in Matthew 3. Verses 7 to 10. It says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, now it's easy for us to say Pharisees and Sadducees because they're not very popular today, at least the term. But I, let us recognize that those terms were very highly esteemed in John the Baptist day. These were the pious people. They were the leaders. They were the elected, elected officials. And so when he saw the church leaders coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. Can you imagine talking like that? I mean, not just calling them snakes in the grass. They were poisonous snakes. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. You know, he wouldn't even baptize them. Can you imagine refusing to baptize someone? He baptized the harlots, but he wouldn't baptize the church leaders. Do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. You know, we, are, we go way back to Abraham's day. We are the true church and we are the true leaders. So don't think to say that. God is not dependent upon some linear, linear succession in order to have a church. He can raise up children from these Abraham, from these stones to take your place. And then he said a verse that should be marked in every Bible. Verse 10, because I believe it still applies. I don't know when it quit applying. If it's not still true, I don't know when it quit being true. But this is what he said. He says, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree, every tree, whether it be a local church, or whether it be an individual, or whether it be a higher authority, it matters not. Every tree 
which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You mean God can replace us? If he has, doesn't have us, who's he going to have? We're the only true leaders there are. Well, John the Baptist said he can replace you just the same as he replaced Lucifer. If you develop the same spirit of independence that Lucifer had, you can be replaced too. Ellen White comments on these verses here. Desire of Ages, page 107. And uh, she quotes this uh, Matthew 3.10. And then she says, It's not by name, but by its fruit is the value of a tree determined. I tell you, I wish we knew that one sentence. It would help us know over in Hungary, for example, which was the true church. Is it the one that has the name or the one that has the fruit? If the fruit is worthless, the name cannot save the tree from destruction. I'm going to tell you, the Seventh-day Adventist name will not save any hospital, school, church, or conference from destruction that doesn't bear good fruit. John declared to the Jews that their standing before God was to be decided by their character and life. Profession was worthless. Calling yourself a Seventh-day Adventist is absolutely worthless unless there are fruits to go along with that profession. If their life and character were not in harmony with God's law, they were not God's people. You mean the Jewish church, even the leaders themselves, weren't God's people? Well, Jesus went on to amplify, as found in Desire of Ages 239, if you want to look at it. They were not his people. Speaking of the leaders of the church. They were the, in charge of God's people, but they themselves weren't God's people. Just because they were leaders, because they had no fruits. Jesus gave the true picture of who was independent and who was a part of the real church, whose headquarters is in heaven, as we find in Hebrews 12, verse 23, over in John 8. Look with me at John 8, 42. To 44. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, if you were the children of God, in other words, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I of myself come of myself, but he sent me. Now that can be true of message. I want to say, and I'm not saying this about myself because I, I'm no prophet of any kind, that's for sure. I'm just, I'm just a humble layman. But I want to tell you, if God sends a message to the church, and I don't care who He sends it through, I don't care who, whether it be through A.T. Jones and Wagner or whether it be through anybody else, if we're God's people, we'll hear God's voice, won't we? What does it say in verse 44? You are of your father the devil. I'm telling you, Jesus could speak straighter than about anybody I know. Can you imagine standing up to a general conference official and say, you're of the devil? That's your father? Your father is the devil? Could you imagine? Uh, you know, Jesus spoke kindly. He had tears in his voice, full of compassion, no retaliation of any kind. But he was speaking pretty straight, I would say, wouldn't you? 
You're of your father the devil. Why? Because the desires of your father you will do. Now when Jesus came, he was viewed from the beginning as being independent. But of all the people on earth who had ever lived, he was the least independent person who had ever existed. Look with me over at John 5, verse 30, what Jesus himself said. He said, I can of myself do how much? Nothing. Now God tempted Eve with saying, listen, you don't need anybody to tell you what to do. But when Jesus, the creator of the world, came down, he said, I can of myself do nothing. And my judgment, um, as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And yet, though Jesus was viewed, though Jesus was the most, the least independent person who had ever lived, he was looked upon from the beginning of his life as being totally independent and insubordinate. He was looked upon, I say, as that. You know, we don't always see things right by looking on the outside, do we? Sometimes things get confusing. We think those who are righteous, those who we think are righteous sometimes aren't. Those who we think are wicked sometimes are different than what we think, aren't we? Well, Jesus was totally different than the way he was viewed. I'd like to read some things from the Desire of Ages. And remember the verse we just read. I'd like to read how it appeared that Jesus was. And, and some of these things are rather startling, starting clear back from when he was just a boy. In fact, that might be all we have time for, is even as a boy. Here is on the chapter on page 84 of Desire of Ages, the very first paragraph where she begins to talk about his childhood. And this is how she introduces the life of Jesus as a child. Imagine the first paragraph, how she, how she introduces Jesus. Here it is. Jesus did not interest himself... Speak, well, first, she, first part of the paragraph, she talks about the rules of the church. And then she said, Jesus did not interest himself in these matters. From, a chi- from childhood, he acted independently. I thought we just read that he never did. Well, I didn't finish the sentence, but I want to get the point. There's three more, four more words in the sentence. He acted independently of the rabbinical laws. These weren't just councils. These were laws. These were the laws of the church. And he was independent. Talk about an independent person. Yet remember, he was never independent. But he was viewed as being independent. From the scriptures of the Old Testament, the scriptures of the Old Testament were his constant study. The words, thus saith the Lord, were ever on his lips. Well, I come down to the next page, page 85. Because he was so gentle and unobtrusive, the scribes and elders supposed that he would be easily influenced by their teaching. They urged him to receive the maxims and traditions that had been handed down from the ancient rabbis. Now, I want you to notice, these weren't some new rules that had been handed down. These were ancient rules of the church that had been here for hundreds of years, and the church had honored for hundreds of years through many schools and leaders and all the rest. This was a part of church life. This this had been incorporated in the church manual for decades, millenniums. Well, not millenniums yet, but for for hundreds of years. But he asked for their authority from the Bible. 
I can remember, we had a church in, in, uh, that I helped to start, actually, by God's grace. Had about 200 people in it. And uh, I had taught, the tried, we tried to teach the elders the, the duties of the elder, and part of those duties were to be shepherds of the flock, and they were in charge of the pulpit. And the president didn't like that because the president had promised to make this group a church. In fact, we, he'd asked us to start the conference executive committee, I should say, had asked us to start this church. And, uh, but after it was going and functioning and et cetera, uh, the president refused to make it a church because the elders were in charge of the 11 o'clock service and who spoke. And the president said, this is uh, my job. I decide who speaks in the church. In every church of the conference, I decide who speaks. I send the speakers down and I make that decision. If I send a minister down, he's in charge of the pulpit, you know. Have you ever heard a minister say, I own the pulpit? Yes. I own the pulpit, you yes. see. This is mine. Yes. And um, so uh, we said, well, the elders, you know, we got together and we talked with him. The head elder and myself, I should say. I wasn't the head elder. I never wanted that job. And it's not the work that God's given me to be. Uh so we asked him simply, uh, we, we could certainly be wrong. We want to study. Because, you know, we make mistakes. This is just the way we understand it. But why don't we study it? And if we're wrong, we will be glad to change. Because we don't want this responsibility unless it's what God's given us. If God's given the responsibility to you, we want you to have it. Let's study it from the Bible. And we were being honest and sincere, trying to be. He says, no, he said, the church manual has already decided that. We can't study that from the Bible. And actually, the manual doesn't say it just like that, but that's what the manual said. He says, well, we should study it from the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. He says, no, he said, we don't have the authority to study that because the church is... And then it goes on. I tell you how confusing it gets. Listen to this. It gets more and more confusing. It says, Mary often remonstrated with Jesus and urged him to conform to the usages of the rabbis. I mean, can you imagine a little boy, 12 years old, and all the, the church pastor talks with him, the elders talk with him, his brothers talk with him, and then his own mother talks with him, and he still goes independent. I mean, that's an independent lad, wouldn't you say? Now, notice Ellen White says that Mary, one time she got down and talked with him about this. What does it say? Mary often remonstrated with Jesus, urging him to conform to the usages of the rabbi. I want to tell you, that would be rather confusing, wouldn't it? But you know what Jesus did? He took out the Bible and he showed Mary why he was doing these things, time after time. 
And it says, uh, peace came to her heart as he presented the statements of scripture upholding his practices. Well, I could go on through the desire of ages and the life of Jesus. Jesus became so independent. We're told over on page 111 of the desire of ages. It says, um, Though Jesus was the Prince of Peace, his coming must be as the unsheathing of a sword. The kingdom he had come to establish was the opposite of that which the Jews desired. He who was the foundation of the ritual and economy of Israel would be looked upon as its enemy and destroyer. You see, if everyone followed, did what Jesus did, I mean the church would fall apart. Who would be in charge of it if everyone did what the Bible said? Instead of following the rules of the church. I mean, you've got to have order. Order is next to godliness. Order is how heaven is built. And God has established these leaders, and we have to, we have to respect, you know, the Lord's anointed. Am I speaking in parables, or does any of this make sense? And I'm not making... The last thing I want to do is teach anyone to be independent. But dear friends, somehow we've got to learn to be dependent on this book first. Amen. We've got to learn to follow the Lord at all costs, Amen. no matter what it costs us, because it costs Jesus a lot. Desire of Ages goes on to share how that the followers, the, the leaders of Israel, because Jesus was going to destroy the church if everyone followed him, he was gaining an influence over the, over the people. They When they finally figured out what to do with Jesus and got him out of the way. Ellen White says they looked them at themselves as the patriots of God's people, of the church, patriots of the church, and they had saved the church. They had saved the day. They got rid of this independent faction that was going to destroy the church. You remember what Caiaphas said? It is better for one person to die than for the whole church to be destroyed. I mean, the fact of Jesus teaching, whether it's true or not true, that's not the main issue. The main issue is we're going to lose the nation because everyone's going to go off doing their own thing. We're going to have fanatics here and offshoots here, and we're going to have everyone doing their own thing. If people follow Jesus, tithe will be going here and there and offerings, and pretty soon our whole economy will collapse. And uh, it's better to get rid of him. I mean, don't worry about what he's teaching, just the fact we're going to lose the church. We better get rid of him before we lose the church. It's better for one man to die than for us to lose the whole church, isn't it? And so they disfellowship Jesus from the church. But you know, the most interesting thing is, is he was not kicked out of the church because Jesus was the church. Amen. And when they disfellowshiped Jesus, the church went with him. That's what it says over in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Notice, notice this with me, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he put all things under Jesus' feet. I'm just saying it's the pronoun here, but replacing the pronouns with the nouns so we don't have to read the verses ahead. And he put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Over in Colossians, 
1 verse 18, he says the same thing. It says, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things Jesus may have preeminence over the church. Dear friends, the church and the church organization is not to be the thing that has preeminence. It is Jesus and his word. The church and the church organization is always to remain subservient to the Lord and to his word. That's Protestantism, dear friends. Catholicism says that the church organization takes preeminence over the word. Protestantism says the word takes preeminence over the organization. That is the basic difference between Catholicism and Protestantism. That's what brought about the great Protestant Reformation. Ellen White comments on some of these things. Over here on page 414 of The Desire of Ages, she, she quotes Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 that we just read. <clears throat> she says, The church is built upon Christ as its foundation. It is to obey Christ as its head. It is not to depend upon men or to be controlled by men. Many claim that a position of trust in the church gives them authority to dictate what other men shall believe and what they shall do. This claim God does not sanction. The Savior declares all you are brethren. All are exposed to temptation or liable to err. Upon no finite being can we depend for guidance. The rock of of faith is the living presence of Christ in the church. Upon this the weakest may depend. And those who think themselves the strongest will prove to be the weakest, unless they make Christ their efficiency. Cursed be the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his arm. By the way, that was a favorite text of Ellen White's all through Testimonies to Ministers. She quotes Jeremiah 17, verse 5, over and over and over again. Did you know these things were in the Desire of Ages, by the way? Listen to what she says over here on 467 of the Desire of Ages. Going out and up just a little, little ways. She talks about uh, Abraham. Who are the children of Abraham here? A mere and lineal descent from Abraham was of no value, she says. She says, This principle bears with equal weight upon the question that has long agitated the Christian world. The question of apostolic succession. Now, dear friend, the question of apostolic succession doesn't affect a church until it's been around for about a hundred years. Then all of a sudden it begins to affect it. When it's just come, you don't have any succession. But after church has existed for about a hundred years, you begin to have successors to offices. Descent from Abraham was proved not by name and lineage, but by likeness of character. So the apost- now that's what John, uh, what Martin Luther recognized. He said, uh, "It says so the so the apostolic succession rests upon the transmission. Does not rest upon transmission of ecclesiastical authority, but upon spiritual relationship." Do we understand those words? Desire of Ages, by the way, the whole book deals with church authority from one end to the other because that's what Jesus was dealing with all the time. 
a life actuated by the Apostle Spirit, the belief and teachings of the truth they taught. This is the true evidence of apostolic succession. This is what constitutes men the successors of the first teachers of the gospel. Well, we have over in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 27 and 28, it says that God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, secondly prophets, then teachers, and all the rest. God has appointed these in the church. I was reading some material that somebody gave me here a while back. Here, this is from Review and Herald, the third volume, page 270. It says, If ministers and men in positions of authority will get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit move upon the minds of the lay brethren, God will direct them what to do for the honor of His name. Let men have freedom to carry out that which the Holy Spirit indicates. Do not put shackles upon humble men whom God would use. I probably should... <laughs> I probably shouldn't read the next sentence. It gets into controversial stuff. The next thing it says, women who are willing to consecrate some of their time to the service of the Lord should be appointed to visit the sick, look after the young, and minister to the necessities of the poor. They should be set apart for this work by prayer and the laying on of hands. It's interesting, isn't it? Well, who is the head of the church? Jesus is the head of the church. Who has appointed people to do their work? Ah, oh, the Holy Spirit has. Now, we're looking at questions here, trying to use the mode of questions to try to understand how things apply to today. I want you to listen to an important question and see if we can answer it. Do you suppose that if I was charismatic enough and in the right place, and did the right things, and was smart enough, all of which I'm not. But if I had all of these attributes, just the right attributes, in the right place, and the right friends in the right places, that I could somehow have invested in me a certain amount of authority in the church. Maybe I had more and more and more authority. Could I ever, do you suppose, um, do you suppose that I could ever get enough authority to supersede God's authority? No. Could I ever get to the place where I could tell someone whom God is called to preach that God is not called him to preach? Could I ever have that much authority? Do you suppose that I could ever have enough authority to tell someone whom God had not called that God had called him to preach? You know, the Bible talks about a power that would come in the last days who would sit in the, on the seat of God, in the temple of God, showing himself that he was God. Now, that is the papacy. But, dear friend, that's the spirit of the papacy. Ellen White says in 5T, page 80, that the spirit of the Antichrist is ruling among us as never before. Amen. Now that does not say that the church does not have proper authority. The leaders do have authority under God, but dear friend, the authority must rest in this word, not just in the counsels of men. Amen. When the Holy Spirit indicates and we have 
We have the plain word of God. We have authority to act. But we do not have authority just to make up our own rules and regulations and decisions. The church is to be built upon God. You remember the Lord asked Peter one time, who do men say that I am? He said, some say this and some say another thing. He said, but who do you say I am? He says, oh, you're the Son of God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, because you didn't learn this from church authorities. Flesh and blood has not revealed it to you. But my Father revealed it to you. Upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And dear friend, when the church is built upon that rock, nothing can prevail against the church. When the church utters the utterances of God... And acts, well, Jesus went on to say, and whatever you'll bind under this, when you're acting like this, you know, when God is your leader, whatever you bind will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose will be loosed in heaven. The real Greek there is whatever you bound will have been bound in heaven. In other words, you will know what heaven is doing, and so you'll act in accordance. Whatever you loose will have been loosed in heaven. When heaven disfellowships someone, you'll disfellowship them on earth too. When heaven takes someone into church membership, you'll take them into membership too. You see, it's when the books on earth match up with the books in heaven that the church is purified. And so it is that when the church utters the utterances of God and acts under His direction, it is the voice of God. But when they become independent of God and assume authority, the authority that the Sanhedrin had, they become another voice. Dear friend, it is just as simple as this. The church, when the church utters the words of God, it is the voice of God. You know, this was a great... uh, This was the great burden back in Jesus' day. Have you ever heard of 1888? 1888, we know know about the righteousness, righteous by faith and all that. But you realize the great issue of 1888, the great issue was church authority there too. This has been one of the great issues through, through the ages. It's been doctrine and church authority, these two things. That was the problem with the papacy, doctrine and church authority in Revelation. 1888, the great problem was doctrine and church authority. You know, when Jesus comes, all the world is going to be either following after the beast or following after the Lord. We're told that the world is going to make an image to the beast. And all the world is going to be forced to bow to that image. An image to the beast is when we enforce the doctrines of men upon the consciences of others. And don't allow them to follow their own conscientious convictions. I want to tell you today, I believe that many of our Adventist churches are training people to follow the mark, to to receive the mark of the beast by enforcing them to receive the decisions of men versus following their own conscience. We're training people for this. Ellen White says over and over again in testimonies to ministers, train people for their own sake on page 375, for example, page 380 again, page 361. Page after page, she says, train people, teach them for their own soul's sake not to make flesh their arms because they're going to lose their souls. Not to look to men for direction. 
Oh, let me read you one of these. I'll, let me turn to 375. We'll read it, just that one. She says, uh, when our people in the different places have their special convocations like we have here today, teach them for Christ's sake and for their own soul's sake not to make flesh their arm. There is no power in men to read the hearts of their fellow men. The Lord is the only one upon whom we can with safety depend. And He is accessible in every place and to every church in the Union. The place men where God should be placed is not honor or glorify God. Is the president of the General Conference to be the God of the people? Are the men in Battle Creek to be regarded as infinite in wisdom? Well, she goes on and begins to quote Scripture. She says, Just as soon as man is placed where God should be, he loses his purity, his vigor, and confidence in God's power. Um, she says, Let me entreat our state conferences and our churches to cease putting their dependence upon men and making flesh their arms. Look not to other men to see how they conduct themselves, etc. Our churches are weak because its members are educated to look to and depend upon human resources. And I want to tell you, our churches are weak today. This was a problem in 1888. Let me read just a couple sentences, statements here. Here, This is uh, in the old 1888 materials, book one. This is on page 110, so you can see this is right at the beginning. This is, um, there's 1800 and over 1800 pages. This is, this is a letter that Ellen White wrote to Elder Butler either right during the General Conference or right after the General Conference. And even though it's a letter to Elder Butler, as people did back then sometimes, she puts Elder Butler in the third person anyway instead of second person, you. She calls him by name. And she talks about the great problems that were coming in the church, and then she tells the reason for those problems. She says, This is largely due to the feeling of Elder Butler that position gave him unlimited authority. That was the reason for the problems that were in the church. And then she goes on in the same letter, two pages later, later on page 112, and she begins to explain the issues. It says, God designs that men shall use their minds and consciences for themselves. He never designed that one man should become the shadow of another and utter only another sentiments. But this error has been coming in among us that a very few are to be mind, conscience, and judgment for all God's workers. The foundation of Christianity, and she puts this in quotation marks, is, is Christ our righteousness. Those three words. Have you heard of those three words? We know that's what 1888 was all about. Christ our righteousness. But you know what it means. She then explains the meaning of these three words. Christ our righteousness. This is what it means. It's according to Ellen White. At least part of what it means. She says, men are individually responsible to God and must act as God acts upon them, not as another human mind acts upon their mind. That's the meaning of Christ, our righteousness. God is to be our righteousness, our righteous leader, not some fallible, mortal human being. For if this method of indirect influence is kept up, notice it was not a hierarchy on paper, as the papacy is. She says it was indirect influence that was leading people. Indirect influence. You couldn't go and say, listen, we have a representative. We have representatives in this church, this church, this church. We all have our committee. We're a committee-run church. We're a church of the people. Oh, no, she says. There is an indirect influence that is molding and manipulating the work from the top. 
She says, if this indirect influence is kept up, souls cannot be impressed by the, or directed by the great I Am. They will, on the other hand, have their experiences blended with another and will be kept under a moral restraint which allows no freedom of action or of choice. If that was true in 1888, what would Ellen White say today? There are people that are even afraid to go to meetings because of moral restraints and the indirect influences and all the rest that come upon them. They're afraid even to get their souls watered or to go where they think the Spirit of the Lord might be because of these indirect influences. And they're held as slaves. We've got slaves within the church. We're developing a whole denomination of slaves. Slaves to the pastors and the presidents. Dear friend, I'm not talking about rebellion. I'm talking about learning to depend upon the Lord Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit first. God deals with His creatures with, as with responsible beings. He has issued no command that the leaders of the Battle Creek Church shall remain anchored until by some mighty miracle working power the church is sent forward and upward to the harbor that God has appointed. If we would be wise and use diligently, prayerfully and thankfully the means whereby light and blessing are to come to His people, then no voice nor power upon earth would have authority over us to say, This shall not be. No voice, no authority on earth. The Lord has presented before me that men in responsible positions are standing directly in the way of the working of God upon His people. Well, she goes on. We go over to page 141. And uh, here she says, I hope you have these works and that you're reading them. She says, Let no human hand place a yoke upon your neck. Dear friend, that's a command from the Lord. Those aren't my words. And they aren't taken out of context either. I urge you to read the whole thing. Read it. Well, of course, the counsels go both ways. To the leader, she says, don't become independent of God and try to take His place. And to the... And to the members of the church, she says, don't allow any human being to become your God. Amen. You know, there's a whole chapter here in the, in the Testimonies to Ministers that is entitled, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. She talks to the leaders in this chapter and says they are becoming gods to the people. That's bad to become a god. She says uh, here on page 361, the high-handed power that has been developed as opposition has made men gods, makes me afraid and ought to cause fear. It is a curse wherever and by whomever it is exercised. Over and over again, probably, I haven't counted, I should sit down sometime, count how many times she says how that the, that the, peop, the leaders are becoming gods. She says the spirit of domination is extending to the presence of the conference. Rule, rule has been their course of action. Humanity is hailed as God. She's talking to our leaders. But not only does she say they should not act as gods, there's a whole chapter in here entitled, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Dear friend, the spirit of hierarchicalism is the spirit of Satan. Once he develops a hierarchy, all he has to do is gain the top man. And sooner or later, he always accomplishes his purpose. And once he gains the top position, he never loses it. Because when Satan gains a top position, he influences that person to put people just like them under him. 
And the next one that is chosen is someone who has climbed the ladder of success and has manipulated their way to the top until those are the only people there are to choose are those people who are political in nature. And Satan's, if he can develop a hierarchical hierarchical order of service, he can gain the organization every time. That's the way Satan works in labor movements. That's why labor movements are not after God's order. It's the way he works in governments. That's why communism is not in God's order. That's the way he works in religious services. That's the way he works in, in, in criminal activities. That's the way he works wherever he works. Even his own government is, is headed up as a hierarchy, Ellen White says. Well... However, it takes two people to make a hierarchy. For a hierarchy to exist, whether it should be developed in the papacy or in the labor movement or in a government or back in the Jewish nation or wherever it may exist, it takes two groups of people for a hierarchy to develop or to exist. It takes somebody who wants the power And it takes a whole group of people who are willing to submit to that power. Do you follow what I said? The reformers who would not submit to that power were burned at the stake. When enough people were willing to be burned at the stake, the power was broken. Now I want you to know the reformers were not a group of rebels. They were the best citizens they were. They tried to reason. They went to places like the Council of the Diet of Worms and, the, and, and all these other places. They reasoned, they studied, but when it came to their convictions, they followed God regardless. And dear friend, those are the kind of people that's going to make up the 144,000, no one else. Amen. It's not going to be those who make an image to the beast. Amen. It's going to be those who are willing to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Well, I wish I had time to read more. I wish I had time to read Ellen White's message in in 1901 at the General Conference where she said, in 13 times in her opening speech, she said, kingly power has taken hold of of the General Conference, she says. Kingly power. She says, here's a whole group of little kings here running this affair. She says, get out of the way. Not all the money has to go through you. Not all the decisions have to go through you. You're not to be the king of the church. You're to be servants of the people. Well, supposedly, we had a change in 1901. Let me read to you something most interesting. However, just one quick quotation on page... um, This is in a letter that Ellen White wrote in January uh, uh, January 14 of 1903. No, yes, January 14 to Judge Arthur, if I can turn to it real quick. It's in this little book. I don't know if I can turn to it right now. Cost of Revival, which I said would get to each of you. She says, The saddest experience of my entire life was the General Conference of 1901. Now, we thought it was 1888. Well, it was 1888 until 1901. And then 1901, she says, was even worse than 1888. She says that was the saddest experience of her life in this letter. She said, Because... They made decisions to change on paper, 
But she says when they went back to their fields, there was no change was made. They went on carrying on their work just the same. You see, it takes more than making a change on paper. In fact, in 1903, they even changed the paper. But she says no change was made. Well, I better quit reading quotations. There's more that we could look at. Today, God is not calling for a new movement. But He is calling for a reformation. Amen. He is calling us to come into line with His leading. I was talking to a, a man, conference president some years ago, who later became a union president. He's a union president today about a hospital that we were enlarging at that time. It was a Washington Adventist hospital. They only had 10% Adventist help anyway. I shared what Ellen White said about large hospitals. And he said, well, that was good for Ellen White's day, but she said, that won't work for today. Dear friend, today our church is riddled with independence. It's being led in an independent way too many times. I was talking with another union president just a few days ago. No, about a month and a half or two ago now it was. And he started talking about somebody. And he says, oh, he says, they, they take the tithe. They are thieves because they steal the tithe. I said, no, what do you mean by that? And we talked a little bit. And I said, what did Ellen White do with her tithe? And uh, what did Ellen White say about the tithe? He says, well, he said, uh, he said, do you believe the Bible or do you believe Ellen White? So I didn't know there was a difference. But I said, you know, is there something in the Bible? Well, he couldn't turn anything to it in the Bible, but nevertheless, I, and I said, well, I believe that Ellen White was given to help us understand the Bible. I said, do you understand? I was, I was not, uh, this was over a period of four hours. I tried to be very respectful. I believe we should all be respectful. I don't believe there's any place for, for uh, you know, for lightness or trivial or, or for uh, disrespect. I don't believe in that. But I, I asked him, I said, do you, do you believe that you understand the Bible better than Ellen White did on, on this area of tithing? And he says, yes, I believe I do. So I asked him again. I wasn't sure that he had understood or that I had understood or one of us had misunderstood. So I said, you mean you believe that you understand the, what the Bible says about tithing more than what Ellen White said? He says, yes, I believe I do understand tithing more than Ellen White did. Of course, he had to believe that because he believed that all the tithing should go in a certain place, which is not what she said. Well, I want to tell you, dear friends, God is calling for us to come back and become more dependent upon the Lord Amen. and to quit being independent Amen. as people and as leaders and all, uh, all of us. I was, um, well, I better not give any more experiences. God is wanting us, each one of us, to, become, to have less dependence upon our ministers and our leaders. Not, not, Less respect. He doesn't want us to become disrespectful. But he wants us to become less dependent, dear friends. There is a difference. Jesus was not dependent upon the ministers of his day. He was respectful, but not dependent. 
And God is wanting us to become less dependent today. It is time for revival and reformation. Not for independence. But it is time for revival and independence. And of looking to God and being fashioned to His image. And guided by His Spirit. And dear friend, just as soon as we do this, people somewhere will say, this spirit of revival and reformation will destroy the church. And we better get rid of it. It's better for one movement to die than for the whole church to collapse. Because if everyone just does what the Bible and spirit of prophecy says, we'll lose the church for sure. No one will listen to us anymore. But dear friend, you know, that's what they said about Jesus. But you know, the only way that the children of Israel, that, that, the, that Israel could have been established was to follow Jesus. It was destroyed by getting rid of him. And dear friend, today God has again spoken to his church through his witness, through the spirit of prophecy as well as the Bible. Some think if we follow the Lord's way, it won't work. The church will collapse if we follow the Lord's way. We must establish our own independent authority, even if we have to go to court to do so, or wherever we have to go, we have to establish it. <coughs> but dear friend, God's way is the only way that does work. It's the only way the church can be established. Turn with me to our closing two texts in Revelation. In the last days, there are going to be but two groups of people on earth. Revelation 13, verse 3 tells us about one group. It says, I saw one of his heads as it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed after the beast. You can remember these two texts real easy. One is 13.3 and the other is 14.4. 13.3 tells about the world and 14.4 tells about God's people. 14.4 says 144,000 don't follow the beast. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. And so today there are, is most of the world is going to be trained to follow after mankind. But there's going to be a small group of people who follow the lamb wherever, wherever, wherever he goes. My prayer is that each one of us will be found followers of the lamb wherever he goes. Amen.